Thanks for listening to Chicago's Morning Answer podcast sponsored by Signature Bank. Signature Bank takes pride in helping customers grow their business and provide unmatched banking expertise, custom financial solutions, and the industry's best technology. So whether you're a business looking for a deposit relationship or needs a ready source of financing, Signature Bank is the right bank for you. Call today at 773-467-5600 to hear how Signature Bank can help your business grow and thrive. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy, as feared. Herschel Walker loses the runoff election for a United States Senate in Georgia, giving the Dem Socialists a 51-49 majority in the Senate, which means that Reparation H won't have to cast tie-breaking votes, which means that the so-called moderates in the caucus like Manchin and Cinema, and I do emphasize so-called, will have less influence and their, in, their streaks of independence will matter less. And they'll be in charge of assigning committees, and it's just depressing all over again. Here was uh, Herschel Walker's uh, concession speech in part last night. But one of the things I want to tell all of you is you never stop dreaming. I don't want any of you to stop dreaming. I don't want any of you to stop believing in America. I want you to believe in America and continue to believe in the Constitution and believe in our elected officials most of all. Continue to pray for them because all the prayers you've given me, I felt those prayers. I want to thank all my team as well, Team Herschel, because they put up with a lot. I want to thank Team Herschel. Thank all my donors as well, because you guys, without you, I couldn't have done what I've done. So I want to thank all of you as well, because there's no excuses in life. And I'm not going to make any excuses now, because we put up one heck of a fight. And I said, that's what, that's what we got to do. Yeah, I mean, it was a classy concession speech. Yeah, uh, it was, it was uh, just another victim of identity politics and uh, the Democrat Socialist Superior GOTV program, one would argue. We saw it the entire cycle, or we anticipated its impact, didn't think it was going to be as impactful as it was, didn't think there would be a, uh, a lack of Trump support turning out for in the midterms like there were in some, not all states, but in some states. So, I mean, it's not what happened to Herschel Walker in Georgia is sort of a familiar story with pickup opportunities in the Senate for Republicans uh, nationwide. 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line. 64636DA, turnkey.pro text line. I just, the, the, the pro-abortion pastor, I still, it's hard wrapping my, my head around that, that Raphael Warnock, who preaches every Sunday, is into late-term abortions. Yeah. It's just so... What was, would Jesus do? Uh, uh, oh, kill the kid. Oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> you got a problem? I just snub it out. Yeah, the Jesus is way. I like that. Yeah. That's why, do? That's you know, here we're going to have the... Uh, you, you, well, you heard it yesterday. Trump, uh, MAGA candidate, uh, you know, Herschel Walker's uh, problems... In his past, the incidents of domestic violence, and those are all uh, legitimate issues that are to, to be raised on a campaign during a campaign. 
for a candidate to have to answer, and he did answer them. I know, and then another one came forward the day before, and it's like they had them hiding, you know, right in October, the October surprise, and then the November surprise, and, oh, we have a runoff. we got to find some more. It just didn't stop. I just thought that they were, I mean, it was relentless. Do you uh, blame Trump for Herschel Walker and, by extension, Herschel Walker's loss, the loss in Georgia yet again? That's uh, 0 for 3 over the last uh, two cycles. 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line. 64636DA, turnkey.pro text line. And does this uh, prove that Trump is not the kingmaker anymore when it comes to candidates? Obama suck toy Van Jones was uh, enjoying himself. Oh, on the CNN desk yesterday as the results were coming in. And he had this to say about Herschel Walker. I want to get your reaction. Tonight is about Georgia, and tonight is about Trump picking somebody who, frankly, used to be a hero. Uh, his, his name, Herschel Walker used to mean inspiration. Now it means insult. He's an insult to the black community. And a, what you may see tonight is people coming out not just to vote, uh, in favor of a senator that they love, but just to vote against Donald Trump picking somebody like this and throwing this person at the voters in Georgia, like, well, you'll just pick anybody who's black. His judgment, Trump's judgment uh, tonight is going to be, I think, called into question by a lot of people. And, and I think that when you have, when you have a situation where uh, uh, it's obvious that Trump, uh, went a, uh, he was a little bit too clever by half, mm -hmm. I know... I'm going to put a black guy against right. a black guy, but the guy that he picked was the wrong black so guy. So you think it's insulting? I think, you it's, think it's absolutely insulting. It, it, it. I mean, he, Herschel Walker loves America. He did it because he wanted to be senator, not because Trump asked him. Yeah, maybe Trump, obviously Trump was involved in it, but that's, that's just as shameful what Van, Vance Jones said. And I was watching CNN all night, and they were going back. They were panicking at one point, like, well, wait, wait, this county's not counted yet, so dude, hold on now. They're going back and forth, and when they finally, the AP announced that they're all happy and could relax and say stupid things like that. Uh, who's insulting? Who's insulting to the black community? Herschel Walker or Van Jones and people like Van Jones? So, I, I'm sorry, Herschel Walker is not a uh, independent adult black male. He doesn't have the sapience to make his own life decisions there were there was a, a primary campaign for the nomination to be the republican nominee for senate in georgia herschel yeah. walker won it yeah he won it mm -hmm. uh, other people put themselves up and herschel walker won it so the voters decided after herschel walker decided to make himself a candidate and so he enjoyed the support of trump maybe uh the encouragement and support of trump is a fair characterization so what that, so that makes Herschel Walker what? Uh, just an appendage of Trump's as opposed to his own person? Is that what happens when the Republican Party supports a black man or black woman or minority? Are they not their own person? Are they just a tool of the uh, <laughs> conservative uh, threats to democracy, white supremacists, so on and so forth? So you, you can insult um, – me all day long, that's fine. I, I, or Trump all day long, irrelevant. The focus should be on Van Jones insulting voters, insulting Herschel Walker, insulting other black minority candidates who chose to affiliate with the Republican Party because it more closely represents their viewpoints and interests. But no, no. 
Trump, he just installed Herschel Walker. Like he 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 uh, pulled him in off the fields at Mar-a-Lago and said, you're going to run for Senate. Is that how it went, Van? That's how they talk about it. And they get away with talking. People like Van Jones, identitarian hacks, Obama suck toys. They get away with talking about minority candidates, particularly black candidates in the Republican Party like that. Just like it's Uncle Tim Scott in South Carolina, the senator, right? Is he an insult to South Carolina voters, Van? Because he, he was supported by Trump and and all of uh, 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 all of the other threats to democracy that form the power structure of the conservative movement, the Republican Party. Is he not his own man either? And we could go on down the list. That that statement that he made, but Herschel Walker was a hero, and now he's a disgrace. Yeah. Yeah. Why? Because yeah. you say so. No, because he's he an had, accomplished be, man. Shut your mouth. Well, first of all, God. first of all, hero is, uh, again, misapplied. He's a hero because he's hero. a great football yeah, player. He's no, he's an inspiration. Yeah, because he was an unbelievable athlete and because of the way he carried himself. And there are things that we didn't know or the things that were not always in the public eye about Herschel Walker that came to light. And they weren't pretty because he had some struggles in life. But it's so funny because then in the next breath, you'll hear Van Jones talk about what we as a country need to do with in terms of giving ex-offenders a second chance and you know people who've uh, done wrong in their life but now are trying to be on so they get consideration you know a gangbanger who's been in prison for violent crimes they get consideration from van jones and the identitarian hacks herschel walker the mistakes he made in his life the wrong that he did that there's a lot of evidence to support He's uh, attempted to, number one, he's been contrite. Number two, he's attempted to make amends. You know, the difficult situations and and complicated relationships between him and some of his children. Is that unique? Hardly. But he doesn't doesn't get get a second chance because Trump put him there. No, he doesn't get a second chance because he's a black man who chose to run as a Republican because he is a Republican. And then you layer in Trump because they'll treat any conservative minority candidate the same way they treated Herschel Walker. Van Jones would say that about anybody. It just makes it easier because it's Trump, their number one boogeyman. And I just love that Doug Flutie had a wonderful introduction to him. He introduced him on stage last night. Yeah, it was nice to see Flutie on stage with him. Greg Schomburg. Hey, Dan and Amy. I'd like to interject one more dimension to what you just said, Dan. I have two friends that live in the North Georgia area, uh, one in Marietta and one in Cummings. And both of them said when I called them yesterday that on a scale of about 15 to 1, the level of excitement and the level of contact door to door for Warnock over uh, Herschel was amazing. Oh, yeah. Uh, Okay. Yeah. I I, had a bigger ground game. Thanks for the call, Greg. Well, they also had twice as much, three, four, five times as much money in the general and if you conclude the general and the um and the runoff yeah no i know more advertisements more ground game more enthusiasm yeah i I know right that well that's a failure of the republican party it's failure of the herschel walker campaign it's a failure of the georgia state republican party it's a failure of the national republican party particularly the senate republican campaign committee you know this this is a failure anything Uh, herschel walker could have won the race 
He could have. It was uh, obviously close enough for a runoff, and then it was close in the runoff, a hundred thousand votes. So flip fifty thousand votes in a city, and excuse me, in a state as populous as Georgia. Yeah, certainly you can look back and do a post mortem and say here's where we failed. Not to mention, although it's a little bit was a little bit more difficult this time around because you had such a small window. But after seeing what happened with early voting in uh, Senate races in Pennsylvania and Arizona and elsewhere. Uh, knowing what you needed to do in the days right after the November 8th election leading up to last night's election, um, maybe more of a push. I know Tea Party Patriots and others were on the ground doing that push. I know this. Um, But right. So I agree. The machinery of campaigns matters. But the and the overlay matters. So what's going on nationally? But I'm not going to give any quarter to this. This is Trump's fault and not because I'm defending Trump, just because I think it misses the point. This is um, just machinery. This is uh, just vote by mail. You know, there's sort of a a deeper uh, cultural identity uh, dynamic that's at play here, as we talked about in states like Illinois. Uh, just this is it, it's not issues. It's not candidate quality. It's I don't care if you level up a potted plant, which is what they did in Pennsylvania. Yeah. I'm voting Democrat. And, you know, I, I know you say, well, Walker versus Kemp and Walker versus some of the other statewide Republicans. Right. And that's where on the margins you start to talk about these other secondary issues. But, you know, even with Kemp's victory. I mean, for example, the most popular Republican in the state, you know, a a six point victory against Stacey Abrams. You want to talk about quality of candidates. And and she's even sort of more acerbic and ridiculous and demagogic than Warnock, which is saying something that that is hardly uh, an expression of Republican Party dominance in the state of Georgia. And obviously, Kemp had a record of success as an executive he was running on that Walker did not. And that helps, too. Another one of those secondary and tertiary variables. Listen to Dan and Amy on your smartphone. Download the AM560 mobile app today at 560theanswer.com slash mobile. If you're looking for the latest news, insight into what it means, and the sharpest opinion, there's only one station in Chicago where you can turn, and it's this one. We're AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy talking about uh, the results in last night's Georgia United States Senate race runoff in which uh, Ralphia Warnock won election over Herschel Walker. And it's strange because yeah. about 100,000 less people, less people voted for him during this runoff election than before. And same with Herschel Walker. Well, you expect turnout to be a little bit lighter. Uh, people coming out, you know, on, on an election that's not a national election day, even though it's important to Georgia and a month later. And so there's bound to be some atrophy. But and now that they have control of the Senate, Democrats are going to confirm more liberal judges, decide committees. So it's not I mean, it's I think it's a big loss and. Uh, I'm, I mean, I, I I just feel like I'm licking my wounds all over again. It's depressing. <laughs> it's you so know, depressing. It's, I'm sick. Can I say it, that? I'm depressed, okay? It, it's depressing uh, because it's depressing to know uh, that somebody like Ralphia Warnock is in the United States Senate. 
you know, say the same thing about uh, you know Senator Slingblade from Pennsylvania. I mean, that comment about abortion when he was on MSNBC about long-term abortions, he said it's exactly what Jesus would do. I, I mean, it, what? You call yourself a pastor? But the th- this, the, it's depressing on one hand, and then you have to t- take a step back and regain some perspective. I think I, I think I think we've come to understand, mm-hmm. or I hope we have, that this idea that the upper reaches of power in the government in this country are occupied by dizzying intellects and wonderful gentlemen and gentle ladies. I, I think we've we've been disabused by that of that notion by now, haven't we? That, you know, basically, to borrow from Dennis Miller, my my good friend uh, from Arizona it translated as, you know, that jag off over there next to me and that these are a bunch of inconsequential people who've been Earl shibed into looking somewhat consequential with their suits and their pontification. I think I think we you know, I, I hate to to denigrate the institution but it's the people we send there that are actually doing the denigrating. Three one two six four two five six zero zero is our turnkey dot pro answer line. You can also reach us via text. That line's always open. Six four six three six. Type in DA, then a quick comment. I mean, there, there's you know a good amount of people with a good amount of money. Some who've only made a good amount of money since they got to Congress, which is always interesting. So there's some people that have some talents and have some skill sets, but it doesn't make them courageous. And it doesn't make them diligent when it comes to this aspect of their lives. A lot of people who find success in business or mm-hmm. or some other walk of life and then they choose the public life, it's to stay in the public eye or to have something on their epitaph they can point to, again, of say, I was consequential. I didn't just make money. I did this. I was a United States senator. I was a governor, so on and so forth. And their term of service is largely un- inconsequential. So it's just the, the Senate. Oh, my, a United States senator. Wow. Uh, not wow. Not wow anymore. Maybe someday we'll get back to where there are more people in the halls of power that have a wow factor because of their ability, their intellect, their courage, their diligence when it comes to public policy. But I don't think we're overloaded with that right now in either party. Michael Southside, you're on Chicago's Morning Answer. Morning, Dan. Morning, Amy. Thank you for taking my call. Uh, truth is, Herschel Walker was a flawed candidate, but my, my, my. I mean, it is amazing how the mainstream media blatantly put his thumb on the scale in that race. Mm-hmm. Oh, nice yeah. Uh, they were Michael. relentless for Herschel and I gotta Walker. Tell and you. he even gave them access that Raphael Warnock did not give them. They spent a whole day with Herschel Walker. Raphael Warnock would not let MSNBC or... You know, spend a day with him, go back to his hometown or show where he lives now, currently in a situation, wouldn't do it. And, and they, they still used him and abused him. i got to tell you something that encourages me about uh, the, the race, despite the outcome, and about Herschel Walker being the candidate, was last night and throughout the campaign as he's being pilloried from every direction, he, there's just this uh, serenity about him. Yeah. He's just so comfortable with who he is today and his relationship with uh, Christ and the focus of his life 
that he can take a pounding for the last six months as he did. He can, you know, uh, narrowly uh, be down after the general election and narrowly lose a runoff. And you can have people like Obama suck toy Van Jones denigrating his manhood. Uh, and he um, and he just says, hey, we put up a hell of a fight yeah. and I'm proud of what we did. And I'm glad to have gotten to know so many people. And, you know, we'll keep on trucking, basically. I just I, I thought that it's not even what he said. It's his demeanor that speaks mm-hmm. to a man who is very comfortable with himself. And um, there's an authenticity to that. That that to me is an example that should be emulated. There, there's something he is at peace with himself because yep. of the strides he made in his life in a way that hucksters like Raphael Warnock are not. And he said, you know, he loves America. He does, and he you know, encouraged people too. You know, it's, we're going to be okay. We're going to move forward, but keep voting. Never stop voting. And I love that message that he sent too. Verlon Southside. I'm tired of hearing about this narrative that black people are conservative. For the last 35 years, at least, black people have put their conservative principles to the side for the overall agenda to succeed. It took them this long to do it. I was looking at that same program last night here at work, uh, CNN, with Van Jones talking, but I wasn't focusing on Van Jones. I was focusing on that black lady that I don't know her name that was on the panel. She said this was a 10-year effort of organizing by a certain certain groups. I forgot the names that she said to get this win, but they were but they were really looking for Stacey Abrams and this win, but they're not going to stop. Black, black people have bought in. So people are going to, our side is going to have to get the narrative of changing strategy to try to, to try to get a win. Otherwise you do the same, you get the same. Uh, and well, what, one thing that she what? said was, well, well, one thing that she said was true. One thing she said was true. You're never going to win any major city across America, and that's where most of the people live, is in all of these inner cities and counties. And if they take those over, they're going to get the win every time. Yeah, well, so what is the message then to, uh, do you think, Verlon, to uh, black voters? I mean, you're seeing some incremental movement, particularly young, younger black men, away from the Democrat socialist plantation, but... What's the message, do you think, then? What's the pitch? Okay, number one, I've been talking about this for a month. Number one, conservatives are going to have to go into the black community and see what black people want instead of preaching from on Mount High. Black people isn't isn't listening to people trying to tell them how to live and and what to do. You're going to have to go engage. And talking about the long-term plan of the nuclear family, all of this, you got to understand, if the numbers are correct, 75% of black men are out of the home, that's a lot of broken homes. So you're going to have to change strategy to appeal to these broken homes. They've bought into the crumbs that the Democrats are giving them. They'll rather take the crumbs than get nothing. So you're going to so, have so, to so, try to so, teach yeah, black so, people. Yeah, 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 right. So this is my point. So first of all, they'll like go to the black churches and so on and so forth. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I. What's that? Darren Bailey did that during his campaign. Uh, but uh, look, I, I agree with sus- for it. I got I agree with sustained engagement. You know, the candidate du jour that shows up to the black churches for ninety days before the uh, election. I get the problem with that. Okay, um, but that's not going to be enough. Uh, and no. and the and wait a second, wait the crumbs. You, you, the, now you're, you're getting to the crux of it, but it's more complicated than you're describing. So, right, so 80% illegitimacy rate in the black community. And so these families, and they've decided to uh, 
volunteer to be serfs of the state and take the crumbs from the state to be dependents for the rest of their lives. That's what they've decided to do, many of them. And you're saying you, what, you need to come in with a message to those people who've decided to give up their individual sovereignty and become wards of the state. So what is the message? Our crumbs are bigger? Is that what game we're going to play? Because no. we're not going to win that no, game, and I don't want to play it. No, absolutely not. I'm not talking about the welfare recipients. I'm talking about the middle-class blacks. I'm talking about the working-class blacks, and I'm talking about the working poor. You're going to have to come in with a message. So what's the message? Blacks how to what's in- the message? Investment. Investing in America. Teach them about stocks. Teach them about long-term investments, IRAs. Do you know how many black people don't even participate in any of that? They don't know anything about the, the, uh, all of the economic messages that you and Sean talk about every single day. They don't know about any of that. They just feel like government is supposed to come in and do the investment or, or, or for whatever kind. Black people don't care how they get it, whether it's government, whether it's so-called resources. They, they just need investment, but they need to be taught how to invest. Okay. Hey, Verlon, right. can I Thanks. ask you before we let you go, uh, what did you think about Van Jones saying that Herschel Walker is an insult to the black community? Do you know it ain't – Van Jones is last to say it. Do you know I argue with my brother every time I see him about Herschel Walker? He, he calls him stupid, uh, a dummy. He's just a, a, a Uncle Tom. Uh, I, every black person I come across, I don't think I've had, uh, come across one black person that said anything good about Herschel Walker except for John Anthony and Stephanie Trussell and a few other people. Other than that, it's the same narrative. 95% black people against the conservative message, Trump aside. Trump can get 12%, but everybody else in recent history has only got 5 to 6% of the black vote. Trust me, the message is in etch-a-sketched in black people's head that conservatives are racist and they don't want to help black people. Help, fair, care, equity, and all the rest of the words. Those words mean something to black people. Yeah, I agree with that. I, I agree, and I agree that's the problem. I just don't exactly know what the solution is. I mean, it's like if you give up on your life, you want me to save it for you? If you want to run screaming off a cliff, I'm supposed to do what other than say it's a bad idea or say, you know, try to turn you around. But but I mean, if you're intent on it, then you're going over the edge. If you're intent on being a ward of the state, then you can be a ward of the state in 21st century America for life. If you're intent on socializing the responsibilities for your life to the community, then you can do that and get away with it. I don't know what you think you're getting away with. Which is why this all this, you know, sort of obtuse talk about... uh, engaging and messaging and so on and so forth. You know, at the end of the day, I'm much more persuaded by uh, people who basically say, look, um, you can spend all your time and spend all your money, but until there is organic leadership from within that doesn't look and sound like Jesse Jackson and Al Sharpton and Van Jones and these uh, race-hustling pundits and preachers and politicians – then we're in a bad place and we're going to stay in a bad place, generally speaking, disproportionately. Yeah, right. So, yeah, I'll promote school choice as the civil rights issue of our time. And uh, They've decided what's our civil rights issue of the time, and that's transgenders. 
I'm saying what I'll promote. Right, okay. Uh, and I'll promote uh, economic literacy in K through 12 education, but you don't want to hear it. <laughs> you know, the teachers' unions are opposed to uh, allowing disproportionately minority children in right. their care to have school choice and thus their families. They're opposed to uh, an economic literacy curriculum in K through 12 that you can build upon post high school because they're too busy, as you just said, Amy, playing identitarian politics and sexualizing children and race hustling them to be victims so they can sign up to be activists so they can be wards of the state. Oh, I like that. So, I mean, I, you know, the idea that, you know, it's uh, f- frankly, the idea that it's um, uh, the uh, charge of conservative honkies to come in and not tell you what to do, listen, and then what? And then just write checks uh, in the direction you say? No, I don't think so. I don't think so. I'm all for advancing opportunities and uh, and helping to underwrite good ideas and interesting perspectives and proven work product. But this, we come in, we have a roundtable, we listen. You got to do this, you got to do that. You got to put money here, you got to put money there. No, actually, I don't. I don't. And um, what you got to do is stop telling me what I got to do and start providing examples within the communities where you have legitimacy and I don't. I'm just a checkbook. Because it's not going to be changed from the outside. It's going to be changed from inside the systems that, number one, are controlled by black political leaders. Like, you know, the largest four cities in America and institutions that cater to, uh, uh, you know, ostensibly, rhetorically, not actually, cater to minority students like the huge public school systems. And all of our cultural institutions, the universities. So, no, I don't got to do nothing. And I'm not going to pander. A lot of Republicans, a lot of honk, rich honkies will pander. I'm not pandering to anybody. Because I, I, you know, I'm like Herschel Walker. I'm not as serene, but I'm like Herschel Walker. I know who I am. I'm comfortable in my own skin. I, I know when people call me names that... It doesn't mean a damn thing. Just a bunch of noise with them trying to advance their hustle. So it means nothing to me. And unfortunately, not enough people are situated that way. Too many people didn't learn, <laughs> didn't learn what, the, what they teach their children. They need to turn it back on themselves. Oh, hey, what, whatever you need to do whatever you can do to avoid somebody calling you a name. Sticks and stones. Nope, that's not the lesson anymore. I'm talking about for the adults. So I don't got to do nothing. There's some people that are in these communities that are always lecturing, oh, the the all-knowing white man, I get that, and this and that, because you, you try to engage. And then, it's a, and then I, I have this idea. This is what we're going to do. This is what. No, no, no. You're the all-knowing white man. You just shut up and listen. I'll listen, but you got to listen, too. Otherwise, we're not going to be able to work collaboratively. Communication doesn't go in one direction. And neither does performance, specific performance. I, I, I'm done being lectured about what 
uh, white white conservative or you know conservative honkies like me have to do. I'm willing to you know do my share and provide as much lift as I can, but it's based on substance, not based on identity, not based on a magic number, not based on feeling good. If you want to play that identitarian game, then play it on the other side. You're already there anyway. The, the real concern you should have is the, 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 the black community should have, including the black, you know, working class, middle class, for I was talking about the real concern you should have is that we stop taking an interest in your plight altogether as the community continues to self-immolate because they've bought into the plantation politics of the left, because they've bought in to the death cult that is the modern Democrat Socialist Party with their abortion-on-demand, taxpayer-funded, targeting minority families. That they, that because you've bought into K-12 school systems that haven't educated anyone in your community in 50 years. You should be concerned that we stop taking an interest in your plight because we think what's happening is unjust and say they've chosen their course. We're moving on. Listen to Dan and Amy on your smartphone. Download the AM560 mobile app today at 560theanswer.com slash mobile. Business owners, now's the time for your business to make the move to a locally owned business bank. Hi, Mike Gallagher here to let you know that you don't have to look far. Signature Bank was founded in Chicago with a simple mission to help companies like yours grow, succeed, and thrive. Their decisions are made locally by a terrific team that knows your name, cares about your business, and invests in your success. That's why Signature Bank is my bank. I'm a customer. As business owners, they knew that local family-owned businesses were not getting the help they needed or deserved. So I invite you to reach out to my friends at Signature Bank today. Write the number down. Remember this phone number, Signature Bank, 773-467-5630. And learn all about this great bank, 773-467-5630. Or visit them online at SignatureBank.Bank. That's SignatureBank.Bank. Signature Bank makes commercial banking personal. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. In 2021, the revolt against K-12 commissars was centered in Northern Virginia, both Loudoun and Fairfax counties, but really Loudoun County. And that revolt put Glenn Youngkin in office yep. in 2021. And it was that started point. by their COVID mitigations and how you know everybody else around them was in school. That's how it started, I think, with more parents attending school board meetings. And then they learned about other things that were going on in the school and what was right. being taught. Like the curricula. Mm-hmm. And then they also learned about... Uh, sexual assaults that occurred in the school that were covered up by the administration. And ostensibly, the school board was covering for an administration that had covered up sexual assaults. Uh, The uh, sexual assaults that occurred by one person, one person being the perpetrator, who committed a sexual assault in one school, 
and then he was sent to another school within the district and committed another sexual assault, and parents were never notified. And this is a trans student, yeah, a trans student who was using the girls' bathroom, and he sodomized, not raped, guys, he sodomized a 14-year-old girl, Scott Smith's daughter. Uh, Scott Smith uh, came to Loudoun County School Board to address the board. This is back in this is back in June of last year, and got arrested. That was the melee that occurred at the board meeting in which Scott Smith was arrested, the dad of the girl who was sexually assaulted. In the bathroom. Uh, Cheryl Atkinson, in full measure, picked up on this. The Daily Wire's Luke Rosiak picked up on this. So center-right, you would say, from a perspective, media outlets, never... Never the D.C. press corps or any of its outposts right there in northern Virginia. This was Atkinson's report. There was an active effort on the part of the people that were part of this anti-racist parents of Loudoun County to target people that didn't agree with them. The Facebook group suggested getting a list of critical race theory opponents. We need moles to infiltrate their groups using fake user profiles, writes one member. Another advocates for hackers who can shut down their websites or direct them to pro-critical race theory pages. Expose these people publicly. See, this is what the, the, the focus was of the school district and the school board. CRT, as well as the sexualization of children, that part of the curriculum. Well, they were so hell-bent, Dan, on get the transgender bathroom policy passing that's what that was part of it too besides you know what you're saying crt that they they didn't care about the 14 year old girl getting raped because they needed that policy passed yes crt Mm -hmm. and the sexualization of children the focus on sexual identity both in terms of policies like the bathroom policy as well as the actual coursework going on inside the classroom this was their focus and to acknowledge address take corrective action as it related to two sexual assaults committed by a student identifying as trans would have derailed all of that. You have to look at this in context. What happened to Scott Smith's daughter and what the school district was attempting to do because they're linked. The former had the potential to undermine the latter, so we need to bury, cover up the former. Here's the Daily Wire's uh, Luke Rosiak in an appearance on Tucker Carlson on Scott Smith in Loudoun County. This is in October of last year. Yes, this story is one of the most disturbing I've ever worked on. It raises the possibility that the Loudoun County Public Schools covered up the rape of a 14-year-old girl at the hands of a boy wearing a skirt in order to pass a school policy that Democrats were adamant about passing. And as a result of concealing that, a second girl was raped last week. Uh, And to prevent all of this from coming out, potentially, they arrested the father of the victim, uh, tried to put him in jail, 
and he's now the face of domestic terrorism listed by uh, listed individually by the National School Boards Association all for coming to that meeting he didn't come to that meeting because he's a bigot a lot of people thought they knew that guy they trotted out his picture his embarrassing picture with his belly hanging out and his bloody face they all thought they knew him they knew nothing about him this was a caring father who was involved because of something very personal that happened to his daughter and if they would have shut up and listened to him for 30 seconds they would have been heartbroken instead they demeaned him they arrested him and they tried to put him in jail they couldn't let him they couldn't listen to him they couldn't listen to him lest they be exposed you heard luke ruziak talking about now the face of domestic terrorism scott smith the dad concerned dad of a 14 year old girl who was sexually assaulted violated by this kid knowingly uh transferred from one school to the other by these officials i mean it was only a matter of three months between these cells he was he was at Stonebridge High School, then transferred to Broad Run. And the first attack happened in May, and then the second attack happened in October. Uh, Chip Roy, Congressman Chip Roy, so now this becomes a national story. Okay. Thanks to the work of center-right so-called conservative media outlets like Daily Wire, Luke Rosiak. So Chip Roy, Congressman from Texas, when they whistled Merrick Garland before a House committee to talk about it, yeah. The letter that he sent at the behest of the National Association of School Boards declaring that parents who you know, speak in opposition to their school boards are, are potential domestic terrorists. Well, Chip Roy brought the Loudoun County rape cases right to Merrick Garland and listen to that exchange. Attorney General Garland, do you know where Broad Run High School is? Do you know where Broad Run High School is? It's in Ashburn, Virginia, in Loudoun County, Virginia. Do you know why I care? Because I'm a graduate of Loudoun Valley High School. Despite my family having Texas roots back to the 1850s, I grew up in Loudoun. It was my home. And also I care because on October 6th, a mere 15 days ago, inside Broad Run High School in Loudoun County, Virginia, a young girl was sexually assaulted. Attorney General Garland, are you aware? that because Loudoun County prosecutors confirmed that the boy who assaulted this young girl in Broad Run High School is the same boy who wore a skirt and went into a girl's bathroom, sodomized and raped a 14-year-old girl in a different Loudoun County High School on May 28th. Are you aware of those facts? The, the boy was, are you aware firmly, are you, Sorry, are you aware point. further that the boy was arrested and charged for the first assault in July but released from juvenile detention? It sounds like a state case, and I'm not familiar with it. I'm sorry. Oh, please. It went on. Believe that a father attending a meeting, exercising his First Amendment rights, and yes, getting angry about whatever lies are being told about his daughter being raped in the school he sent her to be educated in, that this is domestic terrorism. Yes or no? No, I do not think that parents getting angry at school boards for whatever reason constitute domestic terrorism. It's not even a close question. Yeah, well, that uh, was belied by your letter and Scott Smith's arrest. He was a bit disruptive at the school board meeting. Oh, w- w- if your 14-year-old girl was, 14-year-old daughter was yeah. raped. raped at school and the school officials wouldn't give you any comment on what the hell happened, would you be a little exercised uh, when you came to the school board meeting, try and get some answers on behalf of your daughter? And rather than, as was said by Rosiak, rather than letting him speak, because you can't, can't let the father speak. They, they treated him as 
the suspect instead of the 15-year-old monster who did this. So why what, is this Oh, yeah. So we, why is this important today? We've already gone through this back in 21. Well, because the grand jury released their investigation. They released their report, and everybody ignored it. ABC, CBS, NBC, nobody had it on. And basically the school board, they determined, failed to demand accountability, this is what they said, or conduct proper oversight of the superintendent and staff. Yeah, it's a little worse than that. Here's from the grand jury report. We conclude there was not a coordinated cover-up between administrators and members of the board. Indeed, um, uh, uh, the school board members were, quote, deliberately deprived of information regarding these incidents until after the October 6, 2021 sexual assault. Even then, they learned not from the superintendent's office, but instead from public reporting that the assailant was the same one from the earlier incident in the year, May 28th. We also believe the abduction and sexual assault of a female student at Broad Run High School could have, should have been prevented. Mm-hmm. A remarkable lack of curiosity and adherence to operating in silos by administrators is ultimately to blame for the October 6th incident. While we strongly believe the uh, school bears the brunt of the blame for the October 6th incident, the transfer of the student from one to the other, a breakdown of communication between and amongst multiple parties, including the Loudoun County Sheriff's Office, the Court Services Unit, the Loudoun County Commonwealth Attorney's Office, led to the tragic events that have occurred. People should read it. It's a 91-page report. Despite having a 12-page disciplinary file, wearing an ankle monitor, being closely monitored by the broad-run principal, knowledge of this incident by the highest administrators in the school, and a suggestion by court services unit that a more serious punishment be given, the individual received nothing more than a verbal admonishment for these actions. These actions, sexual assaults. Well, a sexual assault that that uh, predated the next sexual assault. Twelve-page disciplinary file, wearing an ankle monitor, monitored by the pre- the principal, knowledge of the previous incident by the highest administrators in the school district, and a suggestion by court services that a more serious punishment be given. He got nothing more than a verbal admonishment. And he did it again, this time in a classroom. Oh, I don't think they're really keeping a close eye on him, Dan. And they should all be fired. The principal of Broad Run High School should be fired. Stonebridge High School and the whole the board and the superintendent. Well, here's the thing that's even more disquieting. The Loudoun County response to the grand jury's report. Yeah. In spite of recent allegations leveled against Loudoun County School Board and Loudoun County Public Schools, We are pleased the special grand jury's extensive investigation found no evidence of criminal conduct Mm -hmm. on the part of anyone within the public schools, and not a single indictment was filed as a result of this lengthy process. That's another cover-up. Never convicted. Have you ever been convicted of uh, any crime? Convicted? No, No, never convicted. No indictments. Nothing to see here. They don't care about their kids. They care about their agenda. That's what all this is. And the 15-year-old, by the way, has now been convicted of two sexual assaults and sentenced to, quote, a residential program in a locked-down facility. The response to the school, but by the school district and the school board, I guess, is going to hide behind the people that put them in front to be cannon fodder while they were covering up what occurred. I mean, 
apparently unknowingly, according to grand jury investigation. The response to what the main finding of the grand jury, what you just heard me read, is not a single indictment was filed. We're very pleased. When are their school board elections? Everybody should get involved in that. Frank Arlington Heights. Good morning. You know, the problem with a lot of these boards, you know, all types of boards really today, is that they seem to want to be more of your sovereign rather than merely a custodian of the assets and of the procedures and and, and everything that goes on inside of their purview, whatever it is, whether it's a school board or, or whatever. And um, I don't know why that is. Maybe it's just the, 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 the mass media, the whole the, the social media stuff where everybody's got to go be a star and so forth. But everybody's got to be a sovereign. They've got to push everybody around and rule over them rather than merely just manage the stuff that they're supposed to manage that they've been entrusted with. They don't care about the fact they've been entrusted with something and it's an honor anymore to them. They just want to get, get in charge and bully everybody. And that's something that's really sick about our society today. This is why, of course, I've advocated for our school boards to be broken up and our districts to be broken up into many, many pieces so that uh, these liberals can't rule over really big districts like where I live, 214 or 211, big ones. They get in, they rule over a lot of people. Mm-hmm. You have them a lot smaller like they used to be. You can break it up and you, and you win more victories in, in local elections. Yeah, the problem with that is that that's that many more superintendents and assistant superintendents and that many more more seven- and eight-figure pensions and so forth. That's the problem. Sure, no doubt, no doubt. But it could be an excuse, too, for those smaller boards to say, hey, you're not managing as much. I mean, I don't know what the 214 superintendent makes, but it's it's a lot. And if you have a smaller district, well, hey, you're only managing one school school or or whatever it is. It might be an excuse to do that. And... Even if it did cost more, that might be worth it yeah. because we're losing our freedoms and we're losing our ability to manage ourselves and self-govern, to be honest with you. We're ruled by, by commissars. That's what we are. Thanks for the call, Frank. Guess, the uh, grand jury um, yeah. uh, came up with uh, eight recommendations for the district to follow to increase school safety, transparency, and communication. Oh, Isn't that wonderful? How, can you, you're an attorney. How is it that the special grand jury states that the second assault could have and should have been prevented? Yet there's no indictments. They couldn't find somebody to blame. I mean, I, I don't know. Just uh, the superintendent the publicly said something that he knew to be untrue. I mean, he wasn't under oath, but he publicly Ziegler is the superintendent there. Yes. He, he said something he publicly knew to be untrue. He said he didn't know anything about a sexual assault when he was asked about it in an open meeting. And then he later clarified, said, oh, I, I misspoke. Hmm. I misspoke. I misunderstood what was being asked. School right. board elections. I, I, I didn't know. I, I did, Oh, you were talking about that oh, oh, sexual assault that? in the bathroom at that oh. school. Yeah. Um, no, it's it's very unsatisfying. It's very unsatisfying. I don't willy nilly want to hold people criminally responsible for uh, uh, civil responsibilities, essentially. I mean, I, I understand the need for some level of sovereign immunity for policymakers making policy decisions. But then there's something like this. And if you um, cover up what occurred, it seems to me if I was a prosecutor, I would be trying to make out if the facts supported it. And it sounds like they might. 
an accomplice after the fact for Ziegler, the superintendent. It was the administrators that covered up. He's the top administrator. And it was not disclosed that the school board, which has fiduciary responsibility, was left in the dark, according to this grand jury investigation. And so somebody somewhere was the shot caller, and it starts with the superintendent. And so if you're covering up a crime or crimes, plural, then you're an accomplice after the fact. And I would have loved I'd love to sort of get into the weeds with the. Uh, the grand members of the grand jury about that very issue. But, yeah, it's very unsatisfying. Two sexual assaults, one that the grand jury concludes was eminently preventable. And all we get is some recommendations from the grand jury about increasing transparency at the school district. I, I hopefully I don't th- and I don't and I think this is going to be the case. This will not be acceptable to those same Loudoun County parents who revolted last year. So I don't think we've heard the last of of this from the from the parents uh, vis-a-vis the school board vis-a-vis the superintendent we'll see we'll follow it it just reminds me of the catholic priest scandal how they would just move priests from church to church bill lasalle county i don't know if you saw this last night on uh, fox news uh tucker carlson had to had the uh the father and the lawyer on there and not only did the, the school they said a teacher or somebody from the staff had actually walked in that bathroom and saw two pairs of feet in a stall and did nothing to uh, ask what's going on in the stall. And then later on in the evening, Laura Ingram reported that the superintendent was fired. That Scott Ziegler was fired? Yes. Uh, I'm looking that up right now. I hadn't seen that, so uh, if that's true. Loudoun County, yeah, fired, oh, yeah, fired was. after grand jury reports reported by Fox News uh, three hours ago. Parents okay. complained right. to the Loudoun School Board. Thanks for the call, board. Bill. Well, that's that's a good start. Uh, that's a good start. Ziegler being fired, um, but as I said, only a start because there were apparently others taking orders from Ziegler to aid and abet the cover-up. He was fired in a closed-door meeting following the complaints by parents. So good, parents spoke up, and because of the grand jury report. John in Naperville. Yeah, I, you know, I don't know what statute might have been broken for an indictment, but I pray to God there is a massive civil suit, and they take everybody for as much money as they can. Do you guys know if any civil suit has been filed? I don't know I'm if sure the Smith family has filed a civil suit, but I agree with you if they haven't. They should. Um, yeah, yeah. Thanks for the call, John. Listen to Dan and Amy on your smartphone. Download the AM560 mobile app today at 560theanswer.com slash mobile. Only the biggest stories, only the biggest guests, and only the biggest opinions. This is AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy, uh, Mr. 10%, the big guy, President Biden, en route to Arizona yesterday to announce a $40 billion investment by Taiwan Semiconductor in Arizona, thanks to uh, the rent-seeking opportunities the federal government provided companies like Taiwan Semiconductor. Yeah, and he stopped by an ice cream shop, but didn't stop by the border. Yeah, we uh... had this to say when he was queried about whether or not he would be making a border visit uh, in a border state. He said this to Peter Ducey. Visit the border because the more important thing going on, they're going to invest billions of dollars in a new enterprise. Yeah, there's yeah, more important things going on than an invasion in our southern border. Okay, sure. Let's see if uh, Indiana Senator Mike Braun agrees, because there is uh, a 
bipartisan legislation that is kicking around the Capitol to do some sort of uh, dreamer path to permanent residency in exchange for something called border security that is being, uh, I guess, drafted by uh, outgoing North Carolina Senator Tom Tillis and Arizona Senator Kristen Sinema. Senator Braun, Republican from Indiana, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Hey, good to be back on the show. Uh, so with respect to uh, border security, uh, what is your view on this legislation we're starting to hear about being crafted by Tillis and Cinema? Ironically, I sat next to uh, Senator Tillis yesterday at our uh, one of our three weekly luncheons, and uh, he is actually uh, uh, Richard Burr, the other North Carolina senator, is uh, retiring from the oh, Senate. Oh, yeah, Burr, so, I'm sorry. Yeah. 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 Tom will be around for a while, but tried to draw out some of the details, and I said mostly, what's the border security element going to be? And, um, you know, a little light on details in the sense that uh, I said, well, will they at least complete the gaps in the current wall? Uh, Will they build any more in critical places? Uh, Really could not get much. I think that that happening here with just two to three weeks to go in this lame duck would really strike me as being uh, a long shot. And uh, none of the details most of us have seen. I just uh, had the benefit of uh, uh, dining uh, next to uh, Senator Tillis, and uh, they are working on it. Uh, it's a big issue. Uh, to me, it all cascades very simply. Secure the border, absolutely. Start rolling up your sleeves, fixing the issues associated with it. Yeah, so you're not as uh, as uh, predisposed to be enthusiastic as, say, the Wall Street Journal editorial board about this. No, because I can't imagine the other side of the aisle is going to really, in a substantive way, move away from what they seem to minimally condone and probably like uh, the current status. And uh, to me, that is uh, shameful in terms of, uh, I remember a bunch of us went down there a little over a year and a half ago, and right when it was moving from thirty to 40,000 illegal crossings, basically record lows, to now, what is it, close to a couple hundred with another 70, 80 declared as gotaways. So many coming through that nearly 20, 25%, they just see, can't even confront. So that's, that is out of hand. Uh, all right, so let's talk a little bit about uh, your time in the Senate that uh, may be coming yeah. to an end. Uh, yeah. You know, it reminds me of what Jeffrey Ross said about Bruce Jenner when he transitioned to Caitlin. He got out just in time. Um, are are you getting are you getting out of the Senate just in time with the fifty one forty nine minority and uh, two more years of Biden? Well, um, I wasn't going to do it more than two terms in total. I don't know if we ever shared that discussion before, but I'm a big believer in term limits. Before I got to the Senate, and gosh, we need them worse than I ever imagined. Now that I see how the place works, uh, up you know it's easy. Uh, if you've run a business for as many years as I did, you see weaknesses and process and the way things are managed very quickly. You don't need a lot of experience here. You need mostly political will and backbone, which is not in uh, great supply. So um, I had a and it is like many things in life, binary. I either had to do run for governor or run for Senate. And we filed the paperwork to uh, put me in a place to run for governor. And there'll be an official public announcement here very, very soon. So uh, this place is going to get worse before it gets better because 
most in my party. I introduced a balanced budget amendment as a privileged uh, motion probably three, four months ago. I had 15 Republicans vote against it. <laughs> you know, that's I, But I could name what, those 15. Yeah, go ahead. Well, you probably could. <laughs> One starts with R. Um, but because of term limits, Eric Holcomb is leaving. How would you, if you became governor of Indiana, how would you, what is wrong with Indiana? Or where do you see room for improvement? So we're a pretty good state, and we've got a little migration from up in your neck of the woods, I think, to prove it. It's a great state for business climate. Uh, it does believe in things like uh, cash balances, rainy day funds. I think we probably, like most states, when I travel, visit all 92 counties, workforce, workforce, workforce. Before COVID, it's even worse now. Rural broadband, uh, Illinois and Indiana, are by geography, largely rural states. We're actually moving on that, affordable housing. And then the biggest issue in state or nationally would be the high cost of health care. That's when nothing else is going on. That's kind of like a tapeworm on our economy. In my own business, we confronted it head-on 15 years ago, and I'll just put this teaser out there. We can talk about it another day. We cut costs by 50%, 60%. My employees have not had a premium increase in 15 years, uh, and they're healthier to boot. So things can be done on the big issues, but if you're a placeholder, if you're a career politician, you don't take that, that kind of risk because you're going up against the biggest lobby in the country and in most states, the health care lobby, because it's 20 percent of our GDP and it needs to be about 12 percent. Uh, affordable housing. I mean, one of the uh, things that's attractive about the Hoosier state and is sending so many people from Chicagoland to northwest Indiana is the property tax caps, the hard caps on property taxes. Yep. So you actually retain your home equity, and you actually can get a return on the largest investment most people make. We can't do that in Cook County and in Illinois. You can in Northwest Indiana. How does affordable housing fit into that? That that would be a red flag to me, that phrase. Well, affordable housing is something that is probably going to be rural broadband is a bigger issue uh, across our rural counties. Uh, affordable housing would be in the metro area, especially of Indy, which is really turned pretty deeply blue. Uh, Fort Wayne is the second largest city. It's uh, nestled in a fairly conservative part of the state. But that starter home for most families is still out of reach. Uh, recent inflation caused by the Biden economy shutdown and swamping the uh, market with uh, money from the government got those prices all out of kilter and you've had to raise interest rates to try to tamp down inflation get back to where that's closer to normal that is something i think that has merit as long as you don't make it a big state government project you might just find ways uh we got a few entrepreneurs in indiana that are trying to find that sweet spot of 180 to 220,000 with interest rates in that three to five percent range that would be affordable by most young families starting out you're, you're, that's an issue that would be dicey, would be tricky. But if you're an entrepreneurial governor, you're going to take on tough stuff. You're not just going to be there uh, as a stakeholder. And most governors come from the farm system of politics to boot. They've been around the game for a long time before they become governor. So if you become governor, what's going to happen to your U.S. Senate seat? Well, uh, Indiana has become a uh, more conservative state. Uh, consistently, predictably, because of where I live. Uh, the two southern congressional districts were all 
blue dog Democrats in many ways, socially and fiscally more conservative than some of the legacy Republican areas in Indiana. They've all flipped. That's given us a supermajority uh, in our state legislature, both chambers. And as a result, uh, the state is now much more conservative uh, along the lines of what I talked about early, common sense ways. So we'll have several folks. I'm hoping maybe somebody from the outside. We've got a couple uh, congressmen, a congresswoman and a congressman that are very uh, conservative that said if I'm running, they probably for governor, they'll probably uh, jump into the senatorial race. We'll have plenty of good candidates. I'm not worried about that. Mm -hmm. Um, With respect to Governor Holcomb, outgoing Governor Holcomb, you know, uh, fine fiscal manager, sort of caretaking the work that was done by Mitch Daniels at first and then Pence and then Holcomb. You know, he struggled on some of these other issues, though, as far as conservatives are concerned, like me. A um, little bit too COVIDian for my taste, a uh, little bit too <laughs> afraid of um, the identitarian mob when it came to uh, core issues like boys playing in girls sports. Uh, are we going to see right. uh, social conservatism and just I mean, just sort of common sense conservatism on th- issues like boys playing girls sports and locking down businesses and schools from a uh, governor Braun? Well, that would not have taken me uh, long to avoid either one of those uh, tricky uh, trails. And uh, I was uh, quite clear on uh, the COVID issue and did two floor speeches, don't kill the economic patient while you're trying to treat the health care issue. And now the science clearly says, which they always talk about because they, they end up using political science, not science to get their point of view across. I thought we were uh, never liked the idea of you're essential and you're not. What could be more bureaucratic? Uh, we embraced it. My wife's had a business in our own downtown, in my hometown of Jasper, since we moved back to it, uh, I think 44 years or so. And she didn't feel very good about some bureaucrats saying she was not essential, especially when there's less likelihood of anything transmitting there. That's the crazy stuff you get into when you listen to folks blindly that are supposed to be experts. You always take the advice and then make the best decision. On the other one, that was even opposed by most Democrats and deep into most independents on, uh, you know, the transgender uh, sports bill that uh, the governor vetoed. That's the only time I stepped in uh, to really say, what were we doing there? Of course, that was overridden easily. And I think that hurt him, and I don't know what was driving that. We've never had that conversation. Mm-hmm. And uh, so how, how do you handicap the, the governor's race? I know you don't want to play political pundit here, but there was talk that Mitch Daniels, now he's retiring from Purdue, might get in the race and and uh, other members of Congress. You know, there's a lot of conservative yeah. office holders in Indiana. Well, Dan and Amy, I took on two sitting congressmen and beat a sitting senator in 18. And that's because I ran as someone uh, that is an outsider. Uh, that's going to be independent in thinking. Uh, I've been, uh, as a freshman senator, uh, got more substantial legislation passed in 21 than any Republican senator or rep, and will be right there again in 22. I'm not afraid to tackle the big issues, and I'm not going to shrink from the conservative values that I've built my family's life on and my business and my political career. And I'm going to be always open to hearing the next best idea. 
and then go back to those principles. So I feel real good about it. I think the field is maybe frozen where it currently looks like it's going to be. Declared candidate that put a lot of his uh, gubernatorial uh, campaign based upon what I did in the Senate. The family actually supported me as a uh, in the Senate run early. Eric Doden from Fort Wayne. Uh, Suzanne Crouch, who's been around politics a long time. Uh, she's the lieutenant governor. I'm thinking she will declare eventually. And then, uh, you know, I've laid the groundwork to do it. I feel real good. The early polling shows that folks like what I've done as a senator and will put me in a very good spot, uh, you know, when I officially declare for governor. And just to be clear, Mitch Daniels has indicated, despite some early suggestion, he may be interested that he's not, correct? I think that that is where I'm. Uh, I've gotten to know Mitch pretty well. Uh, visit once or twice. Uh, love what he's done at Purdue. He's been an entrepreneur as a university president, shamed many in the Midwest to freeze their own tuitions. And yep. that's another runaway area that a governor needs to step in on. It's now eclipsed the increase in health care costs, costs annually. I won't shy away from that one. And Mitch has done a good job of uh, setting a good example at Purdue. I think 10 years in a row, he's frozen tuition and room and board. Yeah, that's a, there's no question about that. Uh, all right, so this is why Illinois is now the butt of the jokes from Hoosiers. It didn't used to be that way, but it is today, and there's a lot of reason for it. <laughs> Senator Mike Braun, Republican from Indiana, a gubernatorial candidate for the state of Indiana in 2024. We look forward to talking to you as the campaign ramps up. Thanks for joining us again, Senator Braun. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. Thank you so much, and he joined us on our turnkey dot pro answer line listen to dan and amy on your smartphone download the am 560 mobile app today at 560 the slash mobile this is chicago's morning answer with dan proft and amy jacobson on am 560 the answer Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Ronald Reagan provided many indelible debate moments. One of the uh, moments, memorable moments, he provided early on was in 1980 at a Republican presidential debate in New Hampshire when somebody had the silly idea of silencing Reagan. Yeah, well, I am paying for this microphone, Mr. Green. Uh, Elon Musk is taking that next level. Uh, Yesterday, Elon Musk announced that uh, he had exited deputy counsel for Twitter and former general counsel for the FBI, James Baker, after releasing the Twitter files through Matt Taibbi on Friday because of James Baker's role in providing the legal cover for the trust and safety folks at Twitter to suppress the Hunter Biden story in advance of the 2020 election. James Baker, he gone. FBI to Twitter to out. Where does he go now? Uh, probably uh, NIH. Loudoun County Superintendent. Oh, hey. Um, yeah. 
that's not the only one. Uh, that's not the only uh, Elon Musk, I paid for this microphone moment going on here. Um, I almost like this story as much. Janitors hired to clean Twitter's headquarters in San Francisco protested after 20 employees were fired. So Elon Musk fired the rest of them. (gasps) (laughs) I'm not laughing about people getting fired, but it's time you run into reality. You know, it's sort of he's sort of like Clint Eastwood in Gran Torino. You ever run into somebody that you learn you shouldn't have messed with? Yeah, that's me. So uh, the union president for the janitors, our cleaning contractor at Twitter, was told by Twitter that they are cutting the contract. So we have about 48 families out of work, and it just so happens that it's three weeks before Christmas. Well, it just so happens you decided to walk off the job or defend those who were. And so, hey, it turns out, SCIU local who gives a, uh, that there are other people that are willing to clean buildings, too. There's no uh, God-given right to clean Twitter corporate headquarters. Sorry. And we learned something else yesterday. Uh, Missouri Attorney General Eric Schmidt, who is in litigation with Twitter, released Tony Fauci's full deposition. We've read portions of it, like the part about where he knew masks didn't work and so on and so forth. Um, There's another piece of it that you may find interesting he uh, was asked if he knew anyone that worked for social media companies he said well i've had communications with mark zuckerberg in the past who uh i believe uh i've done three outward facetime discussions encouraging people to get vaccinated um fauci also was asked do you have any acquaintances people that you know who work on social media platforms Well, a person who used to work as a software engineer for Twitter was my daughter. Oh, there you go. Didn't hear that before. (laughs) Uh, But, of course, lest you think anything hinky is afoot, you know, a la James Baker being deputy counsel there. Did you ever, when she was working at Twitter, did you ever discuss with her the content of stuff posted on social media platforms? Did you ever discuss with her the origins of the virus or concerns about the origins of the virus? No, she has no interest in that. And that she, and then this was a deposition last month, she stopped working there a year ago. Oh, but she worked there. And of course, he never America's had America's doctor, as he dubbed himself. His daughter worked in Twitter. Okay. We, we, had, uh, we never had any discussions about, no. uh, you know, what to suppress or not suppress because, you know, she had no interest in that stuff. And, and you know, if you can't take Tony Fauci at his word. <laughs> oh, brother. Tony Fauci's daughter, former FBI general counsel. I mean, you, you literally, this would be something out of, a, uh, out of, out of the, the mind of Kurt Vonnegut or George Orwell if it wasn't actually happening, and they were still alive, of course. Uh, for more on Tony Fauci's deposition and uh, just the general where we are with COVID policy, please be joined by Philip Magnus, Senior Research Faculty and Director of Research and Education, at the American Institute for Economic Research. Phil, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, this uh, deposition is uh, quite revelatory. I'm so appreciative of uh, Missouri General Attorney uh, Schmidt and Louisiana Attorney General Landry for um, for having a little sit-down with Tony Fauci. Yeah, yeah. You, yeah so it's been an absolutely fascinating deposition to sit there and read through uh, and that's everything from the revelation about his daughter working for twitter 
to some of the things that he did in the pandemic that he suddenly can't remember. Such yeah, as his, what? Like, what can yeah. he remember? Elaborate well, on that. Well, yeah, the, the main one that uh, I dealt with, so if you remember about a year ago, um, I discovered an email through AIER's FOIA request uh, that was Francis Collins, the head of the NIH, and Tony Fauci going back and forth about the Great Barrington Declaration. And uh, Collins had ordered Anthony Fauci to do a, quote, quick and devastating published takedown of the uh, Great Barrington doctors, uh, calling them fringe epidemiologists. And they basically said in the motion, this media campaign. Well, he got grilled over that by uh, Attorney General Schmidt and the uh, team of lawyers in the lawsuit. And I'll read you right from the deposition. He says uh, that they asked him his role in that, quote, devastating takedown. He says, this is not something I would have been involved in. As I told you, I have a very important day job running a $6 billion institute. I would not have been involved in examining this or doing something that would, quote, counter it. So uh, he just went into full denial mode contradicting himself and the reality is is we have several weeks worth of emails of him going back and forth with Fauci, uh, Fauci Collins, Deborah Burks, all of these major figures uh, on the lockdown side uh, basically engaged in conspiring on ways that they could do the devastating takedown of the Great Barrington Declaration. Did he uh, provide a, a uh, depends on the definition of is moment in terms of trying to parse the words he used in these discussions with Francis Collins? Oh, that's exactly what you see. It comes up in the questioning. There's one moment where the attorney started asking him if he ever uh, referred to the Great Barrington Declaration as, quote, nonsense, and he equivocates, bounces back and forth, and he says, wait a minute. Uh, it's almost comical to read the testimony. He says, wait a minute. You're going to show me an email in a few minutes where I, I use that term, aren't you? And they pull out the email and show it to him. So, uh he has several Clintonian uh, word game moments that he plays throughout the deposition. And and why did he think it was nonsense uh, at any point in time? I mean, fringe epidemiologists, you mean like Jay Bhattacharya at Stanford, Sinatra Gupta at Oxford, uh, Martin uh, 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 Kaldorf at Harvard. Why? How, how is it that those uh, renowned epidemiologists pre-pandemic became fringe? Well, that's the thing, and they even had in one of the emails, and they asked him about this, uh, so Colin strikes the pouch, he says, these great Barrington doctors, they even have a Nobel Prize winner, Michael Levitt from Stanford. Uh, yes. He's fringe epidemiologist, so they asked uh, Tony Fauci, uh, do you think that uh, a Nobel Prize winner is fringe? And he doesn't really have an answer to that. Well, we all know the Nobel Committee is, uh, you know, a bunch of right-wing conspiracy theorists, right? Uh, particularly when it comes to chemistry, which I believe is what yep. he won his Nobel Prize in the field of. Yeah, I mean, it's it is comical stuff, but he is a risable figure. He really has become a risable figure, and and to me, the more of these interminable exit interviews he does, and I'm not talking about the depositions, even just even friendly audiences uh, with the DC press corps types. Um, the more risable he becomes. Uh, that's, that's exactly it. The more that we let him talk, the more that we give him a microphone, it, you know, it's enough rope to kind of hang himself in terms of contradictions. Only the thing that we have with the Missouri lawsuit is now he's under oath. Now he's uh, actually having to give sworn testimony. And for the first time, really, in, um, in the entire pandemic period, uh, they're drawing some scrutiny to him on that front. Well, how much yeah, money because he's you... under oath, right. uh, as opposed to uh, he's not under oath on CNN or MSNBC, clearly. And how much money do you think he's made off the pandemic, Dr. Fauci? And did he get oh, any kickbacks the... <laughs> from the pharmaceutical companies? Well, well, there's the open question. He was already the highest paid bureaucrat in the entire federal government, so he was drawing a, a huge salary off the taxpayers. 
And then the word is that he has all these uh, uh, patent arrangements uh, drawn from research that he was involved in going back years. Uh, just put it this way, I think he is very comfortable in his uh, financial situation going into retirement. Do we know where his daughter ended up? Is she like in the White House uh, comms department now, or where, where is she? Maybe working for Facebook. No. Yeah. That's a great question. They do seem to bounce back and forth uh, between the federal government and, uh, and these big tech firms that uh, are uh, hiring people, and mostly on the political left. And it's like a revolving door between uh, social media companies and federal agencies. Yeah, maybe she's the head of like uh, domestic terrorism at uh, FBI now or something. Who knows? Um, the uh, the other um, interesting development this week was this uh, whistleblower of sorts, uh, somebody that worked for Eco Health Alliance, Peter Daszak's uh, outfit that's gotten so much funding from Tony Fauci at uh, via NIH or N A N I A I D, his uh, agency within the agency, and. Um, that uh, this uh, this guy who worked there, an epidemiologist named uh, Huff, said uh, they knew it was a lab leak, that they were reckless in their collaboration with and underwriting of the Wuhan Virology Lab, and that Dazak and Fauci have essentially been lying from the start. Yeah. Yeah, and that's something I think is eventually going to come out in the public records that we have on this. But here's the other wall that uh, anyone that's investigating this has run into is every time you request something about Freedom of Information Act, uh, the NIH is going through and they're redacting emails. So uh, we just got a new batch that was delivered, involved some of the correspondence with people in the U.K. where, where Daszak's operation was very active. Uh, and it was 61 pages of emails, 58 of which were completely blanked out. This is something that we're hoping that whether it's lawsuits or the House of Representatives doing an investigation. They can put some of the muscle behind it and get these documents released. And um, the um, ongoing uh, debates at the state and local level about and and the federal level with respect to military about vax mandates. Uh, You had uh, SecDef Lloyd Austin say, I want to keep the mandate. So they're keeping the mandate on the enlisted. And you you got meanwhile, you got Pfizer, Moderna going to get approval for the vaxes for under five. So it's not just potentially uh, mandates at the K through 12 level. It's going to be pre-K through 12 if the big pharma companies have their way. Right, right. And there's the absurdity of it. Uh, I mean, I think the the vaccine was helpful as a tool at the time that it came out, especially for the vulnerable. But, uh, you know, we're way past that phase in the pandemic. diminishing marginal returns of uh, this approach of mandating the vaccine is just uh, far been exceeded. So it's almost like a power grab that they're doing right now. Well, I, I mean, vaccines for five and younger, is that even needed? Yeah. I mean, honestly, is that needed? Because that's uh, not a high-risk group by any means. It's exactly. It's the least vulnerable of the groups. And we've known that basically since COVID first hit the scene. We knew that the elderly were at high risk, but young people with the very, very low risk, uh, and yet, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're plowing ahead anyway with these vaccines and not really even giving anyone a choice in it, uh, uh, especially when you get the government involved. Hmm. I'd like to get uh, Francis Collins and Rochelle Walensky uh, under oath, too. Wouldn't that be interesting? And see if we can, you know, it's like getting all the suspects that can, in a conspiracy together and you isolate them so they can't uh, know what the other is saying. I'd like to see how they would position themselves vis-a-vis Fauci's testimony on these topics. Wouldn't that be interesting? 
Well, that's exactly. And you get someone like, so there's this Clifford Lane fellow who keeps coming up in the emails, and he was involved in the Great Barrington Declaration uh, attempt to shut it down. But he was the one that went over to China in February of 2020, and he comes back uh, singing all the praises of the Chinese government and its lockdown strategy. And suddenly Fauci also changes his tune and becomes much more pro-lockdown after that. He is Philip Magna, Senior Research Faculty and Director of Research and Education at the American Institute for Economic Research. Philip, thanks for joining us as always. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you. And he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. It's what Chicago is talking about. It's Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan and Amy on AM560, The Answer. If you're looking for the latest news, insight into what it means, and the sharpest opinion, there's only one station in Chicago where you can turn, and it's this one. We're AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. The West is becoming just one long-running Simpsons episode. Nice. Monorail time. The European Commission has approved a move by France in legislation passed last year to ban short haul commercial flights between cities that can be traveled by train in two hour, two and a half hours or less. So uh, if you want to go from Paris to Bordeaux or to Lyon, from Paris to Lyon or Paris to Rennes or Lyon to Marseille, you get it. Uh, you cannot take a commercial flight. You must travel by rail. Wow. And Saving who is deciding this? Is This is Macron. Well, it, it was France and now it's been approved by the European Commission. So uh, we've got a precedent setter now. So now we can do this everywhere, just like, you know, maybe we'll start to, uh, say, ban flights from here car to trips. Well, or car trips to the local grocery store in favor of a horse and buggy. I mean, let's think about all the possibilities here of making life less and less convenient, eschewing technology. I say, well, high speed rail is a technological technological innovation. Sure. Sure. Um, but technological uh, technological innovations uh, that are limited in their application by your friendly overseers. Yeah, and I know we had uh, big plans for high-speed rail. I remember this about a decade ago, more than that, under uh, that uh, you know, avuncular Governor Pat Quinn that we had right. for a time there. You know, it was going to be great because the problem with traveling from Chicago to Toledo is you can't get there fast enough. And so we, so we need it's such a sought rail. after route too. everybody wants to go to rail. Toledo. Pay no mind to the uh, fact that California scrapped their L.A. to San Francisco high speed oh, rail right. gambit after spending 70 billion dollars. 70 billion or 70 million? No, no, no. B. B. These are these numbers are all in the B's when you're talking about this sort of what? infrastructure spend. But uh, that maybe they'll resuscitate it now that uh, France and the European Commission is leading the way. For more on big, big energy, excuse my lotto reference, please be joined by Steve Moore, economist and Govzilla author. Steve, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Well, good morning, guys. And and by the way, I, I, I heard you talking about the uh, about the the. Um, the use rationing of, of car use and that's yeah. uh, that's not a joke that's happening folks in switzerland right now they have just in fact this was in our hotline yesterday i was just reading from this uh, they are going to determine what are essential and non-essential Ooh. trips 
in your car. Absolutely. And they don't they don't want you they're not going to let you uh you know you mentioned going to the grocery store. Well, do you really have to take your car to the grocery store? Uh you know, uh, Amy, maybe you could just carry your groceries. You know, well, I got rid what of my it? I got rid of my metal cart I used to take to the jewels. Cuz when your what family gets bigger, like you can't do it all in one trip. So yeah, it's not There you work. go. We we can be like the homeless people and you know, you know, rolling the uh rolling the uh the uh, groceries down the street um, no, because no. we're not driving. I mean, this stuff is crazy. And by the way, it's not just that. In Germany, so you mentioned what's happening in France. I just mentioned in Switzerland that, you know, they're going to tell you when what is and what is not an essential trip in your car. Germany put out a, uh, a bulletin um, a, a few weeks ago to their citizens saying, you know, stock up on candles. Yeah. Candles what? this winter. Because, you know, the lights might go out. And also chop some more wood because you're going to need wood to heat your home because we're running out of energy. This is like the Dark Ages. (laughs) These these morons have moved back to the Stone Ages with this green energy nonsense that doesn't work. And what's so scary about this is it's coming to a town near you very soon. Is it going to happen in the United States? The the, the thing that really bothers me about this, this – proposal in france not the commercial flying but i know you'll appreciate this steve is they're also going to limit the use of private jets and that really that really hits home for me Um, how in the world is how in the world is um john Kerry going to get to the climate change right private jets are only going to be allowed for attendance at climate change conferences (laughs) well harry and uh megan markle they just flew from california to new york on a private jet to win a environmental award (laughs) <laughs> or to win environment, or to accept or environmental, environmental awards. awards. Yeah, that's because they're so giving with their time. That was yeah. what they said. Now, Steve, I got another question too about this. Um, well, hold on, I just want to make sure people yeah. know, though. Like, we're not joking here, folks. This is real. These morons who are running these uh, European countries who who moved towards green energy, you know, five and ten years ago, uh, they're ahead of the curve on the U.S. Are running out of energy. This is not a joke. This is not a fire drill. It's really happening in these countries. And our moron president wants to emulate those policies and bring them here. Well, yeah, as we should. Um, the um, uh, <laughs> question I had, because there may be some Illinois legislators listening, so I want them to be able to draft legislation that's reflective of yeah. the European Commission. So in Switzerland, with these, uh, ca- you know, using cars for essential trips and yeah. or not or not using them if they're not essential. What if you're an essential person, but you're making a non-essential trip? Or you're a non-essential person, but you're making an essential trip? Because you, you have to categorize the person, right, as essential or non-essential in addition to the trip. Yeah. Well, that's a good point. It's like, you, you know, that, that Beatles song, How Does It Feel to Be One of the Beautiful People? Yeah. Right? You know, the beautiful people will be able to uh, use cars, but, um, but not, the, you know, not the rest of us. Yeah, the rabble. Um, let's right. say, hey, car- look, there's been a war against cars by the left for the last 50 years. They hate cars. They hate cars. And here's something that people should consider. I, I wrote about this when I wrote my book uh, 22 years ago called It's Getting Better All the Time with the great Julian Simon. What, you know, when the automobile was first invented back in, what, 120 years ago or so, when Henry Ford first started, you know, rolling off those Model Ts off of the assembly lines. That was heralded at the time as one of the greatest environmental uh, inventions in history. You know why? Why? Think about it. Because of horse manure? Yeah, 
Can you imagine what Chicago smelled like in a hot summer day when people were driving? Were oh, riding horses it hasn't changed that much, actually. Yeah. yeah. It still smells about the same. They're still yeah, defecating, you know, Stephen Ward. Yeah, it's exactly. a little different. It's, it's the people the doing it, not the horses. Yeah, right. <laughs> but someone dropped but, a deuce know, the other day. I'm like, oh, that's lovely. Thank yeah, you so much. Probably a school super. I mean, look, I, again, these people are so crazy. They are going to recommend. I, I, I'm not making this up. I'll bet you. I'll bet you within the next year or two, they're going to recommend we go, all go back to riding horses. Well, look what. LA That'd be County. great. It'll be like it'll no. be like Yellowstone. We'll all be living on Yellowstone. It's gonna be so much fun. LA County, they they're they're gonna stop. They have eight hundred um, wells there, or eight hundred uh, places. They're they're not gonna allow drilling on anymore. Come ten years yep. from now, so the you know the price of gasoline there is gonna skyrocket even more. Of course, I mean if you don't drill, you you drive up the prices of these things. And one of the ironies of that, Amy, is because you know Biden has declared war on American oil and gas. Guess what companies are making the most money now? Well, let's see. Chevron, Exxon, ConocoPhillips have been the highest performing mm-hmm. stocks over the last year because when you reduce the supply of something, they've already got a supply of it. So they're, they're able to sell it for, you know, 15 percent more than they were making before. So, uh, you know, and by the way, those are the very same companies. You know, you've heard about this ESG investing. Oh, we're not going to invest in energy companies. Well, guess what? You've just taken out of your portfolio the best performing stocks. Thanks a lot. You're yeah. doing wonders for my retirement fund. Well, the, impor- the important thing is that we enrich the uh, state-owned uh, energy industries in dictatorial countries like Venezuela and Russia. That's that's where we need to be focused. <laughs> exactly. Well, they, um, I, they have a good human rights violation. Well, well, you know, Joe Biden says they're improving their human rights record there in Venezuela. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah I, I don't know if he's talked <laughs> to any Venezuelans recently because they're all in Colombia, but you, you might want to. Um, so, uh, speaking of California, uh, Gavin Newsom there, uh, erstwhile presidential contender for 2024, uh, he's got a problem with the oil industry price gouging, so he's unveiling a plan to cap refinery profits. The good news is there won't gonna, they're not going to be any more refineries to generate <laughs> any more profits anymore. <laughs> no, I mean, we haven't built a refinery in this country in something like 25 years that we, we need to at least five or 10 more refineries around the country. And, you know, without refineries, folks, you don't get, you know, you know, you don't get the gas. You don't get the, you know, the the fuels that we need for everything that we use. So uh, that's part of their war on uh, on energy also is, is not building refineries, not building LNG terminals, not building uh you know, the pipelines, all of this is a dastardly, you know, attempt to deprive. It's called energy poverty. Energy poverty is what they're creating. And you guys said it well, that at, at, at the end of the day, this will be a situation where the important people, the beautiful people will have energy. You know, so John Kerry can go to the climate conferences, but the rest of us, uh, you know, we're not going to despoil the environment by, by using anything like fossil fuels, even though we have 600 years of coal in this country. We have 300 years worth of oil. We have 250 years worth of natural gas. I mean, we're not running out. Remember when they said we had, had to stop using it because we're running out of it? Right. I remember that scare tactic. Yeah. And that was yeah. all. That was a lie? Uh, we are not running out of any of this. The only thing we're running out of is common sense. <laughs> yeah, and it's not and just uh, supply in Washington D.C. <laughs> well, and it's not just Washington D.C. I mean, this is a sort of a remarkable statement given the position she's taken. The speaking of car companies, uh, General Motors CEO Mary Barra, who's also uh, chairs the Business Roundtable, 
talk, talking yeah. about CEO's outlook for 2023. They're a bit pessimistic. Gosh, I wonder why. Um, with yeah. continued supply chain challenges and inflation uncertainty, many CEOs remain yeah. cautious about domestic plans and expectations for the next six months. Sound policy action in the short term will yield long-term economic benefits and lay a solid foundation for our growth and competitiveness. She sounds like a politician. She just said nothing. Yeah. Uh, but what she's actually doing is supporting these rent-seeking, asinine uh, energy policies. Mary Barra is at GM. And here's what's really, uh, again, sort of diabolical about this is that, you know, that's a car company. She runs a car company, right? And, yeah. and they're not, they've decided they're not going to make cars anymore, at least the kind of cars that we want to drive, which are the ones that you take to the uh, gas station and fill up with gas. So they're, uh, you know, our American car companies are basically going to stop making cars that are anything but electric vehicles when, uh, you know, most Americans don't want an electric vehicle. I don't. I don't have anything against electric vehicles. If you want to buy a Tesla, you know, go for it. But you know, the American people have a love affairs with their cars. Yeah. Uh, I had a Camaro when I was uh, in college. And burnout. You know, mm-hmm. you should have seen Total me. What burnout. color you was it? Love me. What color? Let me guess. So let, let me guess. You had long hair and jean shorts too. <laughs> I was looking good back then. But look, we have a little show that we, you know, that they have, they have an auto show down the street from where I live uh, every Sunday. And people, I don't even know where all these people come up, come from. And they bring their, their, you know, these sports cars. They bring their, you know, their uh, Cadillacs and blah, blah, blah. And from the 50s and 60s, people aren't going to give up their cars because Joe Biden tells us we have to. They're not going to say, oh, I'm going to give up my car because I want to save the planet i mean come on incidentally did you see that story you know the forest fires in um that happened in california uh, the last couple years they emitted more greenhouse gases into the environment than all of these stupid political policy changes that have been made in the entire state of california for the last decade Mm -hmm. well it sounds like we got a Smokey the bear problem hey what color was your camaro (laughs) Stephen Moore. It was red. I mean, it was oh, convertible. Oh, I mean, boy. Amy, you would you not. You got the ladies, huh? Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> he, was, he was overcompensating. Chick magnet. Oh, um, yeah. I got to say one other quick thing before we get off. You know, in my one of my heroes, Ron DeSantis, of course, he's the uh, Florida governor. He has basically decided for the Florida pension plans. Have you read about this? It was announced a couple of days ago. He's not going to allow Blackstone to manage Florida yes. pension. System. Taking $2 billion out. Yes. Yeah, ESG and ESG is by the way saying, oh, we're not going to invest in social in companies that are not involved in social justice and racial preferences and, and use fossil fuels. And good for him because he's basically saying, look, we're investing our money not for politics but for high return. I just wonder, do you think Pritzker might do that? <laughs> uh, State of Louisiana is doing the same thing too. I don't think you're going to get that from uh, Jelly Belly here. All right, uh, Steve, uh, thanks. Appreciate it. After our discussion, I'm going to pre-order my horse and buggy because I think there's going to be a wait for him. So and uh, and uh, December seventh, nineteen forty-one, a day that will live in infamy. I don't mo- I don't think most kids even know what fascism is. We defeated in- fascism. Indeed, indeed. Steve Moore, economist, Govzilla author. Steve, thanks as always. Appreciate it. Okay, guys, have a great week. Bye. Thank you. And he joined us on our Turnkey Pro Answer Line. The stories you need to know to start your day. This is Chicago's Morning Answer on AM five sixty. The Answer. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer.
Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. I was interested to see uh, comments from uh, Ed Maher, who's a spokesman for Operating Engineers Local 150, and actually he's a friend of mine. Okay. About uh, their $1 million, roughly, commitment to Chewy Garcia's mayoral campaign. And the basis of his of their support, apparently, is crime and the impact that crime is having on private development in Chicago. That's not me saying it. That's the operating engineers who, unfortunately, even though I like Jim Sweeney and I like Ed Maher, have decided to throw in with the power structure rather than challenge it. It's very short-sighted on their part. But I guess in the long run we're all dead, as Keynes said, so such as it is. Um, Why are they supporting? How is he going to be any different than Lori Lightfoot? He's not. Right, exactly. <laughs> he's like a clown you bring to a block party. Super Mario so Garcia. Like, yeah. yeah, I mean, he's a, just sure another he's a nice cartoon guy. character on the scene. Yeah. I mean, he all these brilliant ideas and this commitment he's going to have as mayor that he hasn't demonstrated in two decades in public office. Right. Is he being effective at all as a congressman in Washington? He's just been waiting for this time. I love that. The career politician has just been waiting for the right moment to be relevant. I don't think so. He's, He's just a hack four. for the public sector unions. And unfortunately, uh, those, unfortunately, 150, uh, it was very sophisticated. They know this, um, but I guess they figure it's the best, worst option. He will serve the public sector unions first. Right. Not the trades. Before so, but, you but, and I. But go ahead and uh, make your bread. That's fine. Um, the lack of private development. And, he, and Maher talked about, you know, a few years ago there were 60 tower cranes on the skyline. You could see them. And now not so much. Right. Well, it turns out that the aphorism that businesses not will, will not locate where neighborhoods are not safe, that is not limited to the south and west side. If the downtown becomes unsafe, if the Gold Coast becomes unsafe, then they won't do developments in those neighborhoods either. And that's actually what's happening. And again, not me saying it, Local 150 saying it. And so is John Garrido saying it. John Garrido, a uh, friend of the show, retiring Chicago police oh. lieutenant. He won't be staying. Well, I'll bet you dollars to donuts on that. He posted on Facebook the worksheets for the 16th District Midnight Shift, 10 p.m. to 8 a.m. the other day. Oh, yeah. I got that. Uh, 16th District is the northwest side, so it's essentially the 41st, the 45th, and the 38th wards, you know, Jefferson Park, Norwood Park, Edison Park. So that's those are the you know few aldermen that have some sense of sanity when it comes to public safety. You've got uh, Spazzato in 38, Gardner on, in 45, and Napolitano in 41. So here's what's happening. And this is this is just like real world stuff. The kind of stuff that an executive who's interested in public safety would know and would address. Yeah, it breaks down what who who's who's at work on a midnight shift. Um, the sheets that uh, Garrido posted indicate seven one man cars and two two man cars. Uh, one man if, cars are so dangerous at night. If you live on, you know, these beats, you can go uh, read this post. But if you live on certain beats, you're out of luck. Nobody will be patrolling your neighborhood. Nobody. But don't worry. When a crime does happen, they will take a car from another beat to handle the job, then leaving the that beat without coverage. 
There will be little to no proactive policing. They will run job to job all night just trying to keep up. Some will say, why put this info out to the public? The bad guys will find out. Guess what? They already know. Yeah, they know. That's why crime in the 16th District continues to rise. This has been going on for almost two years. Aldermen complain about it. Community groups complain about it. Local papers write about it, yet nothing changes. So keeping this a secret, quote-unquote, helps nobody. It's dangerous for our residents as response times are slower, and it's dangerous for officers as backup is usually far away or not available at all. The mayor, the superintendent, and the first deputy do not care about our officers, and they certainly don't care about you. That's a statement coming from a you know, career CPD, a retiring police lieutenant. It's put it, yeah, 11 mayor officers and for the, the largest. Let me, let me just repeat. The mayor, the superintendent, and the first deputy do not care about our officers, and they certainly don't care about you. The department is being run by people with little to no patrol division experience. It's a who's who of promotions, boyfriends, girlfriends, fraternity brothers, wives, siblings, and more. No experience necessary. We can stand by and do nothing, or we can repeatedly call the office of the superintendent and demand more manpower. And he gives the number, 312-745-6100. Be sure to call between 9 a.m. and 5 p.m. because the superintendent runs out the door 5 p.m. sharp. <laughs> That's little. Crime stats in the 16th district. Overall, 16th district crime, up 133% in the last seven days, up 102% in the last 28 days, up 42% year to date. Burglaries up 600% in the last seven days, up 291% in the last 28 days, up 53% year to date. Vehicle thefts up 167% in the last seven days, up 94% in the last 28 days, up 60% year to date. So overall crime stats up 42% year to date in the 16th, up 53% year to date. Burglaries up 60% year to date on uh, vehicle thefts. 434 16th District residents lost their cars this year. Now, the the 16th District, those three wards, that represents about 150,000 people. So think about if it was Naperville and there were 434 vehicle thefts. He notes that, thankfully, murders are down 50% for 2022, and that's good news, but those wards are not exactly the hot spots for murders to begin with, so it probably represents a relatively small decline in, in gross numbers. And that's great, that's good, but the rest of the lawlessness that he documents is the issue, because when you're talking about public safety, you're talking about more than just the interest in not being murdered, <laughs> I would think. 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line, 64636-DA, turnkey.pro text line. You start to get the picture of what's happening, this little snapshot that you can overlay over the entire city. So 16th and 17th District Chicago Police uh, Scanner, they tweeted out, yeah, one officer, one, working the shot spotter camera room, one. And there's 11 officers for a total of 202,712 people, and these people are well-taxed. Mm-hmm. And that's the kind of protection or lack of protection they're getting. I mean, and so w- when do you stop saying, well, that just happens on the south and west side or that just happens on the south and west side and the northwest side or that just happens on the south and west side, the northwest side and uh, Lincoln Square? Well, that no, that just happens at the south side, the west side, the northwest side, Lincoln Square and West Town. No, no, or that, that just happens on. I mean, you could go on and on and on until you run through all the neighborhoods just about. Except MAGA country, where I used to live, you know, Cedarville. 
How are those Asandario brothers? It's amazing, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It's a, it's ama- and and again, executive leadership. So w- w- the executive leadership within the department, which is a reflection of the quality of the executive leadership in the mayor's office. But I will tell you right now, based on the distribution of political might and associated money, the reason Local 150 is picking Garcia is because they're already predicting that it's going to be Lightfoot versus Garcia in the runoff. That's not inexorable. Uh, There's a long time and a lot of campaign between now and February 28th, the primary election, but that's the bet they're making. I mean, and it's not an unreasonable prediction, is it? By the way, this isn't just, um, in case you think this is sort of just like, oh, this is, this, that's not the explanation of the lack of private development. The, the, the crime problem is being overblown. You know, all the, all the Safety Act deniers who uh, have been very quiet since uh, uh, all those amendments to the Safety Act were passed and then signed into law yesterday by Pritzker. Very, very, very quiet. Very all quietly. those people yep. who decried anybody like us criticizing the Safety Act and providing the details thanks to expert input from prosecutors around the state all of a sudden they're church mice uh, walmart ceo target ceo saying the same thing not limited to chicago but really they're talking about metropolitan areas where the lawlessness has taken hold because of these uh, non-prosecution decarceration right. no bail politicians um they're saying look uh we will reduce hours we will close stores if the level of theft in certain places continues and, you know, uh, Walmart estimates one percent of their uh, gross revenue uh, is stolen, you know, worth one percent in stolen goods. Well, one percent. What's the big deal? Well, that's three billion dollars for Walmart. Target is saying the same thing. And they're in the neighborhood of four to five hundred million dollars in merchandise stolen on an annualized basis. They're not going to tolerate it where they don't have to and they don't have to and they don't need to be in certain metropolitan areas no. we've seen this happen at the local retail level with the starbucks uh the shuttering of starbucks is in close. dangerous neighborhoods in big cities at the behest of howard schultz hardly a right winger they close 11 starbucks i knew people running wild i mean look at that poor 83 year old man in north carolina who was working at the home depot and he's trying to stop a guy who was stealing three uh, pressure cookers and the thug just pushed him down, and the 83-year-old fell down, hit his head, and he's dead now. Yeah. It's complete lawlessness. Mm-hmm. Right. It's not just shootings. No. It's not just murders. It's the general, uh, you know. Um, I want something, so I'm going to go take it, and I don't care if I kill somebody on the way. Well, it's just, it's just I mean, do you want to live in Thunderdome? It is Thunderdome. You were so right. You said that a while ago, and I'm like, no, never would be that. And you're exactly spot on. Larry Logan Square, you're on Chicago's Morning Answer. Hey, good morning. You know, crime, uh, you know, uh, seeks where he gets less pushback. And from Logan Square, you know, with all the justification in Logan Square, the criminals are going west. But when I try to speak to people out in the west to uh, be prepared, and they say, well, it's, you know, our neighbor is nice. We have a lot of cops here, firemen, yeah. yada, yada, yada. Well, hello. Uh, now the problem's there. But being proactive, being a grassroots activist, you get pushed back like, you know, your little cuckoo. 
But the fact is, some of the people that are really kooka are not. But getting back to uh, Chuy Garcia, he is a leftist of left. He believes in lawlessness. He believes in that uh, situation that, you know, the police are bad because he was brought up by some really bad people like Louis Gutierrez and, and the group that nobody hears about but are very powerful is called FALN, which is one of the first groups that started the CIP in public schools out of Humble Park. Yeah, they're a separatist organization, terrorist organization. Yeah, that's right. But uh-huh. they're, they're, they stay underneath the radar. They, they don't broadcast their next moves like the Republicans. They're broadcasting, oh, we're going to do this on election day, we're going to do this. You know, they're like the Democrats. They stay quiet. They just work hard. They go to door. They go to the community. And the FILN is all over the community. They're also part of the uh, BLM Humble Park uh, group. Well, yeah, it's all the identitarians getting together. Thanks for the call, Larry. Right. Of course they are. Of course they are. All identitarianism all the time. And let's uh, get together and, uh, you know, divvy up the spoils. Uh, by the way, I, I like what he said, too, about, oh, moving us. Oh, our neighborhoods are nice. Uh, we uh, we have cops here. Oh, really? How many cops and firefighters live in the 41st Ward? <laughs> I mean, every other house. And yet you have the stats that John Garrido recounted in the 16th Police District, which encompasses the 41st Ward. And the alderman is a former firefighter and cop, Napolitano. Right. So so what? Then maybe, they're, they're, maybe they won't shoot it out because... Uh, criminals know how many first responders live in particular neighborhoods, but doesn't doesn't seem to inhibit them from burglaries and car thefts and the like. Is that real crime? Are those quality of life issues? Greg Jefferson Park. Hey, good morning, Dan and Amy. You know, uh, 16th District, by the way, um, Cicero West to the edge of the city, Belmont North to the edge of the city. You know, things are uh, are getting worse and worse here all the time. And like you said, you know, uh, you got Edison Park, Norwood Park, where every other house is uh, city worker, cops, firemen, what have you. You know, it may not be as bad up there, but uh, here in Jefferson Park, things are getting are getting really squirrely because of the uh, ability to get out of this area so easily, whether it's, you know, Milwaukee, the expressways, yeah, right. the trains coming here. Cicero, Elston goes through. All roads lead to Jefferson Park. If you look at a map from Wisconsin to Indiana, downtown is not the hub of the city of Chicago. Jefferson Park is, and that's one of the reasons why these guys come in here and do all these crimes, because there's so many uh, avenues or, or, or you know ways to get out of Dodge. It's, yeah. it's, getting, it's bad, and it's getting worse. And here, lastly... There's six people running, uh, including uh, Garrido for uh, for Alderman, and one of them is this woman, Anna. I can't think of her last name, and she is a proud socialist, talking about how socialism works and everything. And on her uh, step off for uh, for her campaign was at the 16th District Police Station, talking about how cops are are bad. It's it's just ridiculous, man. It's it's really bad. Have Thanks a- for the call. Well, I mean, she'd be in good company. Whether there are half a dozen. Uh, members of the city council who are out and proud socialists. Oh yeah. And and by the way, if you're describing yourself as a socialist, you're soft pedaling it. Now you think that's a, you, you think that's Aggressive sellable. Socialism. You're really a Leninist. You're they're in much more of a hurry than they pretend. Bob, Northwest Side. Hey, Bob. Bob, are you there? Oh, 
Grove, yep. Bob dropped. Then we're going to drop Bob. Rick, Downers Grove. Hey, good morning. And yet these people will continue to vote Democrat. And I firmly believe there's a mental issue with these people, like a hoarder. A hoarder can have 55 gallons rooms of apple cores in their living room. You try to help them and move it out, they physically get ill and they can't do it. And I think no matter how bad it gets, these Democrat voters are going to continue to vote Democrat and live through the hell that these Democrat politicians are putting them through. And I don't think they could ever change. I think it's, it's over for that city. Thanks for the call, Rick. Mike, Northwest Indiana. Hey, Mike. Hey, good morning, guys. Uh, just a couple points. One, I think we could double the police force as long as we have this horrible prosecution, arrest, and you know, no detain, no, no bail. It's not going to matter. And for the people that live in the suburbs, I think they're, they're isolated. When the city gets run down, there's nothing left to steal. The parasites will just move on to the suburbs. Thanks, um, for, the, thanks for the call, Mike. I'm, it's, I mean, I think that's what's right. I think that's I think he's right. And I'll tell you, we're going to see because one of the things we did and uh, many others who amplified what we were saying and what county state's attorneys were saying. With the Safety Act, we put a marker down. Uh, most yeah. everybody who has uh, got a pulse knows something about it. They know where the battle lines were drawn and they know what was predicted if the courts don't step in and prevent its implementation January 1. So we're going to see. And then we'll see if there's any hope of accountability when things get, as uh, Greg and Jefferson Parks said, squirrely in uh, mm-hmm. the leafy burbs as well. But Dan if and Amy, no, no, wait, if it wasn't for you and your super PAC, Dan, though, you need to be thanked. We People would not know about this. And then the fact that Pritzker did it yesterday without media cameras there, you know, they kind of in secrecy because he didn't want to show defeat because that was a defeat for him yesterday. Because he didn't read the bill and he just passed it. So you should be applauded for all your great efforts. Mm, well, the sound of one hand clapping. But I do appreciate it. Uh, Dan and Amy, Chicago's Morning Answer. You've made the switch and it feels so good. You've switched to Chicago's Morning Answer on AM 560. The Answer. Because they got the beat. The campus beat. The campus beat. Yeah. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy, K-12, through for this installment of Campus Beat. A California high school teacher who goes by the name Marta Schaefer mm-hmm. uh, began the school year. She's an English teacher. Tenured, I should note, of course. Began the school year um, teaching parts of linguistics in a way so as to fight, say it with me, White supremacy, of course. Uh, She's uh, posting a series of videos on TikTok explaining what she's doing, maybe hoping to uh, add to the base of knowledge on the topic, get other English teachers from other identitarian re-education camps involved with her program. 
As an educator, I am constantly worried if I am part of the problem. What do I mean by that? Well, public education is an institution that upholds lots of problematic systems in our society, like white supremacy and misogyny and colonization, etc. In my role as an educator, I try to undermine that BS in my classroom as much as I possibly can. I teach high school English and whoo, the white supremacy runs deep. What do I mean by that? Well, let's look at how we write essays. Start with an introduction that includes a thesis. Always cite your sources. Use transition words like however and therefore. These are all made up rules. They're arbitrary. They were created by Westerners in power. In linguistic justice, April Baker Bell calls this the language of respectability or the language of power. Which got me thinking, what if I started my school year with a unit honoring how we talk rather than teaching students how to write properly? So this is the start of my series on teaching linguistics in high school. Sounds fun. Oh, I think we should just communicate with uh, guttural noises. 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line, 64636-DA, turnkey.pro text line. Feel free to call in with a grunt or made-up word, made-up argument, fact-free made-up argument. I mean, if the politicians can do it, why not us as the means of uh, uh, preparing our kids to do the same? You know, it's a funny thing. It's uh, sort of the fallacy of Chesterton's fence here. Um, somebody might want to raise that. Before you go eliminating all the contributions of artists and writers and philosophers of the West for the last, I don't know, couple thousand years, you may want to actually take stock of some of what was produced and say, well, is there a reason? Is there value? I mean, what is language? It's a expression of culture. There's nothing of value that's been created and advanced over the millennia. Is that right? 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line, 64636, type in DA, then a quick comment. Uh-huh. I mean, I, I'm, I, I, you know, I understand uh, those in the field of linguistics, like our friend John McWhorter from Columbia, who make the point that language is ever-evolving and ever-changing. Right, yeah, I get it. It's not static. But um, the idea that we need to come up with a completely new vernacular that rejects everything that has come to this point, this is the idea that we need to start history anew tomorrow. That um, there is no value in the past that the present and the future represent the most advanced point in human history in every sense. Do they? And in some respects, perhaps in other respects, perhaps not. Uh, language has a social function, right? To communicate values, beliefs, customs, group identity, Oh, group identity. Maybe now we're getting to the point of this exercise. You know, the identitarians want their own language. One of the things that McWhorter said uh, in an interview he gave a couple of years back to the New York Times, uh, he was asked uh, about a book he had written at the time. 
you assert the more complex a society is, the simpler its language. Can you explain how that works? And McWhorter answered, I say that the more isolated the society, the more complex the language. In large cosmopolitan societies, you have new people constantly coming in, learning the language as a second language, and for that reason, constantly simplifying it. If a language is spoken over millennia by a group of 500 people and newcomers aren't learning it as a second language, then you don't have people shaving it down to its simplest form. Thus, it will get very complex, arbitrary, full of bells and whistles and needless gunk. And uh, so this is, you know, somebody who's devoted his life to the study of languages. And um, and so maybe that is the point that they want to transmit. I mean, to, to some extent, it's clearly the point that they want to transmit different beliefs and values and customs to future generations, thus the need for new language. And they start by redefining words that had one meaning five minutes ago into something very different today. That's the point. That's the point of redefining marriage, for example. That's the point of redefining sex, for example. So, you know, don't think that this is this English teacher in California is just some loon. You know, there's a point to the uh, discussion of language, a political point. Of course, it's a political point. It's nothing but politics in K through 12 education. Mark in Glen Allen, you're on Chicago's Morning Answer. Yeah, hi. I was wondering if his teacher and others of her ilk that are self-loathing might go back to cave drawings to express their ideas instead of using the technology that Western society has created. Thanks for the call, Mark. Uh, Jim LaGrange. Hi, Dan. Amy, good morning. As the um, warden so eloquently stated to Luke in Cool Hand Luke, what we have here is a failure to <laughs> communicate. Yes. And by the way, Dan, maybe George Kennedy's finest role ever. Uh, yes, very good, before he became... I mean, Leslie Nielsen was a serious actor, too, before they got together in the Naked, Mon- Naked Gun movies. No? <laughs> good. Thanks for the call, Jim. Don Bloomingdale. You know, quite a few years back, Dan, you interviewed uh, the great Walter E. Williams, professor, and he was going through a litany of things that was wrong with uh, colleges in the education department and how they had the, the students had the lowest SAT and ACT scores. The professors were the least written and least respected on campuses. And here you see the offspring of it. Here's the, here's the result. Thanks for the call, Don. Right. No more college essays. We talked about uh, that uh, last or uh, was it last week or earlier this week. I can't remember. Oh, yeah. But re- regardless, week. we talked about how how few college students, how little, uh, you know, how few college students have any serious reading, like 40 pages a week or less. How few college students are required to do term papers. You heard it there from the English teacher in California. Thesis, antithesis, synthesis, uh, thesis, uh, argument, counter argument, conclusion. You got to provide citations and support for your argument, address the arguments of opponents. Well, that's just all a bunch of uh, uh, hangover from white supremacists and uh, colonizers and so forth, right? This is going to advance people's reasoning skills? and Probably not, but uh, eliminating those sorts of intellectual endeavors requirements as part of education 
certainly gets you focused on things like group identity based on just non-behavioral characteristics, non-intellectual characteristics. You just, uh, you're diverse because of your skin color, your sex, uh, your faith, but not because of anything that's going on between your ears. Right? I mean, there's no room for diversity of thought in a mob. Uh, Jeff Berwin. Uh, greetings, Dan and Amy. Can somebody defi actually define what the phrase white supremacy is? They keep throwing these, and racist, they keep throwing these buzzwords and these buzz phrases around, but they never actually define what they mean. What, what, what? are the white supremacists? Well, the they, the they who use those terms so freely and uh, inaccurately, I mean, it's just the, the, the real synonym for how they use that phrase is you disagree with me. Okay. Yeah. That's Make thanks for the call. That's what we've seen. Or if you're a Trump supporter sometimes. Well, right. Yeah. yeah. Six, I mean, well, that's also disagreeing with me. No, they're not Trump supporters. Uh, I mean, and so, you know, funny, I, um, you can understand um, why the um, white supremacy label on Nick Fuentes that's a kid white, from LaGrange, white supremacist who had dinner with Kanye and Trump. You can understand why it doesn't have currency in some quarters, because you've rendered that phrase virtually meaningless by misapplication and overuse. So when you come in contact with a real white supremacist, you're the boy who cried, you're the boy or girl or boy girl who cried wolf. Oh, everybody's a white supremacist. So why should I believe you this time? Everybody who you disagrees with you on climate change is a white supremacist. Everybody who wants to read Shakespeare or make it a uh, you know, required reading in an English class is a white supremacist. And now Nick Fuentes is a white supremacist, too. So I like to read Shakespeare. I'm a white supremacist. He's a white supremacist. Everybody's a white supremacist to you if they disagree. But this is also part of the tilting of the language in the direction of empty identitarianism. That's the custom and belief system that they seek to pass on buffalo uh bob and buffalo grove buffalo bob uh, good <laughs> good morning good i like morning. that that's a good yeah. one moniker well, i remember buffalo bob that's how old i am that's old <laughs> um good talking to you uh amy and dan and uh what became of ebonics remember that yeah and one more thing um teaching of cursive writing that's going to be something that's going to be oh, something of the past that's gone that bob that died 20 years ago thanks for the call bob i mean nobody well, knows how my, my kids had to learn how to sign their sign their name and they didn't take any handwriting courses who do you need i mean excuse me what do you need cursive writing for when you have emojis exactly. uh lisa in westmont texting hey how are you nice Good. uh Nice to be there. Listen, I have a son at Bennett Academy right now, and uh -oh. it really bothers me that he thinks it's so funny to walk around saying, hey, what's up, Jit, and where's the mo frickin' thing for dinner? And I keep saying, listen, Jack, <laughs> talk to me like you are a white boy that grew up in the suburbs going to Catholic schools, not like you grew up in the ghetto. So yeah. I fear for him to know that there is actually a teacher in California that is promoting changing the way that we should be speaking. 
That's all I have to say. Thanks for the call, Lisa. What is going on at Benedict Academy? Just, uh, well, you know, once you get God out of the Catholic school, as Benedict Academy's done, then you open the floodgates, don't you? Elliot and Wilmette. Hey, how you doing? Um, the fellow mentioned that uh, they might go back to the uh, communicating with cave paintings. I'd say they would not, because the cave paintings we know of, that's all from the past. And as you know, the socialists are interested in getting rid of everything from the past. Well, but that was those are indigenous people, the cave paintings of indigenous people, the noble savages from the past, you see. Tim Woodstock. Hey, good morning, Dan and Amy. I, I would just like to ask the teacher if... Um, she, she thinks that perhaps uh, the, the concept of tenure, the tenure policy, is a is a white uh, privileged construct. You know, the ability to avoid being held accountable. Um, I had a teacher once who told me the first and foremost goal of education is to be able to recognize crap when you hear it. That's good. See, that's that's the. The English language in its simplest form, uh, transmitting values. Very good. Thanks for the call, Tim. Dan and Amy, Chicago's Morning Answer. Connect with Dan and Amy using the AM560 mobile app. Download it today at 560theanswer.com slash mobile. Thanks for listening to Chicago's Morning Answer podcast sponsored by Signature Bank. Signature Bank takes pride in helping customers grow their business and provide unmatched banking expertise, custom financial solutions, and the industry's best technology. So whether you're a business looking for a deposit relationship or needs a ready source of financing, Signature Bank is the right bank for you. Call today at 773-467-5600 to hear how Signature Bank can help your business grow and thrive. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender.